Man, I hope you're glad you came to church today. I sure am glad I came to church today. Rain ain't going to keep me away. If rain's going to not keep me away from my son's basketball game on a Saturday, it ain't going to keep me from church on Sunday. Some of y'all didn't want to amen that, huh? Man, we're so honored that you're here. My name is Russ. I have the humble privilege of being the senior pastor here at Four Points Church, and, and this has been such a fun season of getting to know you and getting to know this area of town again and watching Jesus move. Man, we had some church last week up here at Four Points. Man, God began a change. I believe that if we stick to the application of it, that it, it'll change the culture of our church, the experience of our community that's around us whenever they come into contact with it. We spent the better part of the first part of this year working on these things called the one another's. And uh, man, I, I just believe that as we apply these simple but transformational practices to the way that we do life with each other, it'll make us a light and darkness and salt to the earth in a way that our community is longing to find and see. Uh, when we consider one another, when we love one another, when we serve one another, uh, when we confess our sin and pray for one another so that we would be healed, man, God does incredible things in his house. We exist at four points to reach the least, the lost, and the lonely with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are hell-bent on not letting hell have you. <laughs> and so we want to be people of the word and people that not only speak the word, but live the word in a way that you can understand that Jesus is worthy of your entire attention and life and adoration. And we want to invite you into that community, but 2020 and 2021 really did a number on all of our churches, and it did a number on four points as well. And so we're relearning how to be a community together that loves Jesus and is centered on Jesus and centered on the gospel. And we would invite those of you who are checking us out to come and help us in the mission of figuring out what it looks like to be a broken, needy people that have found our entire hope and identity in Jesus Christ. And we want to invite you on that journey with us today as we open up God's Word in a new series and in a new season as we get ready for Easter, which is just around the corner. Amen? It's Valentine's Day tomorrow. You're already halfway through February tomorrow. So uh, you're already getting through almost two uh, or I guess one-sixth of the year, if I did my math correct, two into 12, yep, yep. Uh, and so I, I don't know what God has planned for you, but hopefully you're getting your cells set and your path started in that direction that God would have you go. We're going to open up our Bibles to John chapter 13, and we're going to start marching to the cross as we get ready for this Easter season. The gospel writer John's one of Jesus' inner circle, one of his closest disciples, uh, he takes the liberty to call himself the one who Jesus loves within his gospel. So whenever you read the one whom Jesus loves, John was like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Some of you, you, you don't lack for confidence. We're glad that we could fit in here with how much confidence you have in this room today. But for some of you, you don't have much confidence. And perhaps you could be reminded that you are one whom Jesus loved. Uh, you are a beloved of God. He loves you. Uh, I don't care if it's been the worst week of your life and you've done things you never dreamt that you would do. He loves you, and the scriptures confirm it, and the Spirit is here to remind us of it in the Word of God. John spends more time in the last hours of Jesus' life than any other gospel writer. Uh, perhaps it's because of the unique positioning at the Last Supper that John had to Jesus. We'll speak of that again in a few moments, but we're told that in the last hours before Jesus' death, he closes the door and goes back to an old Jewish holiday that they would have uh, marked their calendars by and remembered together in an upper room. Uh, in five chapters, we get a few hours of Jesus' life, the last moments of his life on earth. It's been referred to by theologians as the uh, farewell discourse or the upper room uh, or the upper room discourse, where Jesus schools his disciples on the chaos that was about to happen, giving them the assurance of his love and his presence and his goodness that they would need because of the rockiness of what their lives would bring in the moments to come in the future. Jesus, unlike many of us, knew that his life was coming to an end. Therefore, his teaching and words in these last moments are calculated and surgical. They are pointed toward the essentials the disciples needed in the, in the upcoming uncertainty that would follow his death. Over five chapters in Jesus' last moments on earth that lead up to his cross, Jesus addresses the topics of service, love for each other, uh, the need and the role of the Holy Spirit, heaven, union with Christ, and he ends it in the high priestly prayer in John 17 that we'll look at together. 
I'm inviting you to open up your Bible with me with the expectation that Jesus, as he has promised, will meet us in a useful way within his scriptures. And over the next few weeks and months, will remind us of the fact that our salvation is costly and free. Most of us think because it's free, it can't be costly, but the gospel is costly and it's free. It came at the cost of his life and him bearing the cross for us that we should have bared, taking our penalty on his shoulders and paying the debt we could not pay. Therefore, he can offer to whosoever would turn to him this great gospel and this great salvation that he offers to those who would turn in repentance towards him. Now, chapter 13 is where we're going to begin this journey, so open up to chapter 13. As you're opening there, I'm going to pray for us one more time, and I'm going to pray that the Spirit will wake some of us up who are in a slumber, and that y'all talk to me so that you make your Super Bowl party. Otherwise, that chicken's going to burn. So, Father, we open up your word, and we ask, God, that you would meet with us in this march. We don't look to the cross and its brutality because it was brutal, but because it's the means by which the Father chose to, through the Son, bring salvation as an invitation to all of us, and we need that. Salvation is not a one-time experience. It's a daily reminder that the shackles that once held us have been broken. The jail cell has been opened. We are brand new. We are a new creation, and we walk now marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ that in its wake set us free. So we open your word, and we ask that you would meet with us and remind us of everything that you are in your character so that it would build us up to be bold enough to believe and walk in that as we walk out of these doors today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 13 of John's Gospel, I'm going to read it in just a second, but to give you some background around this chapter, it is often used in what's known as Monday, Thursday services. Some of you have been a part of a Monday, Thursday service. You may not know what that is, but it's in some uh, church backgrounds a tradition of marking the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. Up until this point, they had taken the Passover feast, but at this Lord's table, we are reminded to frequently mark our calendars to take the Lord's Supper as a reminder of what Jesus would do for us. And Monday, service, uh, Monday Thursday services often will go through this text where we get the conversations that set around the Lord's table as this new institution was, in, was brought into the church so that we would be reminded of the gospel. You'll find two major themes that are in chapter 13. We've looked at them recently, and we're not going to spend the majority of our time there today. In verses 1 to 17, we are called to follow Christ's radical call to service. And we'll talk about who that service is to flow to in just a few minutes. Pastor Austin looked at this briefly several weeks ago. Also, in verses 31 to 35, we are called to Christ's radical call of loving one another. So we're called to serve and love one another, all within the last words that Jesus speaks. And right in the middle of this, we get some characters that rise up that help us answer the question of, to whom does Christian service go to? And to whom does the extension of God's love extend towards? And these are not necessarily the most savory of characters, as you will discover. So let's look at the text. John chapter 13, verse 1, read it with me. It says this. Uh, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would soon return to God the Father. So we get a setting around this story that's quite unique. We've briefly spoken of Passover, but Passover is a uh, mark on the calendar where every year the Jewish people would remember that where they are at today is because God was faithful yesterday. Uh, one of the most frequent calls that you're going to see in the Bible is for you and I to frequently put time reminders in our calendar, in our schedule, that help us reflect back on the past faithfulness of God so that we don't waver on trusting in his faithfulness in present uncertainty. And so the Passover feast was an annual reminder that they once were not free, but because of God hearing them, they now have been set free. That they, they weren't, once were not a people, they did not have an inheritance, they did not have a future. Uh, their future was hard work and slavery for the building up of someone else's kingdom. But now God had chosen them to be a part of the building of his kingdom and his glory 
and his renown in the earth. And so they would gather around the table to be reminded. Now, this happens all over the scripture. If you go back to the book of Joshua, whenever uh, the priests part the waters so that they can go into the land that's overflowing with milk and honey and stop wandering around in the wilderness, they're told one from each tribe to go and pick up a rock and to build a monument. And that monument is to serve as a reminder when the next generation grows up. And perhaps the generation that's raising them has forgotten about the faithfulness of God. They come and see that monument and they say, uh, what, what is this rock thing here? What did you build here? You are to look at them, the scripture says, and remind them of the faithfulness of God on the other side before you walked into the land that's overflowing with milk and honey. We are to remind ourselves and we are to proclaim to the next generation the faithfulness of God. You see, present faith is encouraged and built upon the remembering of past faithfulness of God. When I remember that he was faithful then, I can trust that he'll be faithful now. But if I forget his faithfulness then, then it's doubtful that I will be faithful and trust in his power and provision now. Are you, are you tracking with me? So Passover was this annual reminder. What's your daily reminder of the faithfulness of God? What's your monthly reminder of the faithfulness of God? What's your weekly reminder of the faithfulness of God? See, I, I, want, I want you to understand your quiet time is not just about you learning new things. It's about you remembering old things. So every day when you open up God's word, and this is why we advocate for it, it's you remembering, I am a child of God. I do not live in the absence of his authority, but I live under his authority. I don't live in the absence of his presence, but I live fully in the presence of God. And if I'm not careful, and if I don't remind myself, I could live this day as if God was not present in it. So daily, I remind myself when I open the word of God for myself, which is a unique privilege that you have that many in this world do not have, I'm reminding myself that I belong, that I am everything that the scriptures teach that I am in Jesus Christ so that I won't live as if I'm an orphan when I've been purchased at such a high price. Oh, yeah, Super Bowl Sunday, y'all didn't want to come to church. Okay, y'all want me to preach harder? I'll go in, let's go. Weekly, we gather together so that you can be reminded when you're weak that God is strong, that God in your circumstances has already on the behalf of others in similar circumstances been faithful and true. So when you get around the community of God, you get a little bit more courage than you had before you came in because you're reminded that you're facing some difficult situations, but God brought them through. And if he brought them through, then faithful is he to bring those who are in Christ like you through as well. And so we are encouraged. We are re-gospeled. We are reminded that God is good. You see, these are good reminders. We get annual reminders. Every Easter, guess what we're going to talk about? The resurrection, because the entire Christian faith hinges on Jesus walking out of the grave. It's not about pastels. It's not about Cadbury eggs. It's not about the fact that it is the best candy holiday of the year. Amen. Praise God. What it is about is us remembering that there is a resurrection. Therefore, whatever is going on in temporary time has now been given a sentence to a framework because now what's temporary will not be eternal. What's broken will not be everlasting. Jesus has overcome the grave. So even in death, there will be life and we will stand in the presence of God and in the glory of God forever because the tomb is empty. Oh, it's a reminder. It's a reminder, church. So the, the disciples are coming to a season where they're reminded in verse 1, it's Passover. God has broke us free. God has been faithful. They would sit down to take a meal. Uh, in that meal, there would be four cups of wine. There would be the reading of scripture. There would be a singing of songs. There would be a telling of stories. Uh, there would be veggies and salt water and matzah bread. There would be bitter herbs and horseradish dip that's made up of apples and pears and wine and nuts. It, it's an incredible meal. You would bring your family traditional meals to it. Maybe it was a chicken soup or a fish dish that grandma made, but you would sit around the table with those that you love and those that were dearest to you, and it was for the sole purpose of you looking at each other and remembering that God was at work, that God was not done, that God was faithful. And so as they, having journeyed with Jesus for three plus years, go to this upper room and the door is shut, John gives us insight into this room. And in verses two and three, we're introduced to this interesting character. It was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas. Okay, let's just say that we're going to create a ministry team with the original 12 disciples 
and we were going to do a draft, okay? And so you got a round one pick. Who are you taking? Okay? Peter, John, right? James, maybe Matthew. He's a little weird, but, you know, Matthew. Very detailed-oriented. Right? At what round is Judas coming off the board? Right? Like, like, like if the preacher's like, today, come to church this week, we're going to talk about Judas. That's, I might as well have said, we're going to exegize Leviticus. Right? Because for the majority of us, when it comes to the disciples we want to identify with, Judas is not on the list, but maybe Judas is more like us than we want. You see, Judas was keeping up a public persona of faithfulness while he was living privately unfaithful to the very God that he professed he loved. He presented the money box as if it was for ministry, but what was going on in the money box was corrupt. And for a lot of us, we come into church and we present ourselves before God once a week, and the reminder is that we are chosen and we are to walk in the face of God for the glory of God in every season of life. But we walk out of here with a completely different life that does not match the persona that we personify when we come in here. Maybe we're more like Judas than Peter. Which, which makes it very difficult because Judas is the disciple that's essentially the Bruno that we don't want to talk about. <laughs> and, and here's why. I think it's because he's a lot closer to us than we want him to be. And in the midst of Jesus modeling service and commanding us to love each other, he demonstrates it to a Judas. And thank God he demonstrates it to Judases because you were a Judas. The scriptures teach for when you were an enemy of God. You can call it a Judas or you can call it an enemy, but you weren't for the work of God or the glory of God. You were an enemy of God. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were enemies, he died for us. The godly for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous. So this is the beauty of God's character. God's character doesn't change because of your posture or because of your uh, indifference or because of your sinfulness outside of here or because of your two-facedness. No, 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 the character of God remains the same. He's faithful. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's just. He offers and desires for you to experience salvation. And in this story, we get this beautiful thing called common grace. That's brought to the forefront. Now, I love common grace. I'm a theological nerd, and I'm about to nerd out. I know. You're like, oh, oh God, wrap it up. Okay, <laughs> let me be clear. Co common grace is something that none of you have done to earn, and everybody, whether or not you turn to Jesus or not, gets it. Common grace is, that wasn't yours. You just breathe his air, and he let you have it. That's common grace. Common, common grace is that heart is beating, and you're not telling it to beat. You see, you, see you, you may be angry at the brokenness of the world and say, how can God be good? But common grace is something that he offers to all that are in the world because he is good even when you don't believe it. So he gives you life even though you don't necessarily deserve it because sin is deserving of death. He gives you taste buds so you can taste food. And y'all about to exercise that common grace a lot this afternoon. That's common grace. Whether you turn to him or not, it's a gift he gave because he's good. In the middle of serving and in the middle of loving, he demonstrates common grace. Judas, prompted by the devil, has already turned his attention to betraying Jesus. In fact, Luke gives us a different insight. Before the meal even takes place, look at what Luke says prior to the meal. Luke chapter 22, verses 3 to 6. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard prior to the meal to discuss the best way to... Betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity. Okay, this is pre-mill, already determined. Now, some of people are like, well, Judas didn't have a choice, because Jesus tells him in the mill, go and do what must be done quickly. So Judas had no choice. No, no, here, it's not that the devil made Judas do it. It's that Judas had sinful desires in his heart, Satan tempted those desires, and he acted upon it, which opened up an opportunity for possession to happen. Let, let me be very clear. I don't have a lot of time to go into demonology with you, but, but let me just break it down. If you are in Christ Jesus, you can be oppressed, but you cannot be possessed by the demonic. So when you are walking in obedience to Jesus, there will be an oppression. The, the Bible calls it a, a narrow path where the world will try and get you where they can get you with money and worry and YOLO and all that junk that you think you've got to cram in. 
And so it will press you to make you think that the path isn't worth it, but the destination is the best destination you could be going in. For the believer, there's oppression, but there can't be possession. For some, sin opens the door for the demonic activity at a unique level to take place. It doesn't happen frequently or it's not seen visibly like it is in other places of the world, mainly because Satan doesn't have to do much to get you to be indifferent in this church-saturated culture that you're in. And if you're indifferent, he's already won, so he doesn't need to possess you to keep you from the gospel. All he's got to do is keep you apathetic. And once your church clothes on, cross legs and sitting with your arms like you, you know, are an equal to Jesus instead of someone that needs to be on your knees repenting before him and desperately dependent upon him. What's the vice of Judas's life? Well, we know from other texts that it's this. It's the love of money. Now, money is not what's evil. What's evil is your love of it. It's, it's you prioritizing it above image bearers, so instead of being a good neighbor, you are a oppressor. And when you're an oppressor because of money and resources, what ends up happening is instead of representing the kingdom of God, you represent the kingdom of Satan, which is what this world was already built on. And Jesus is establishing a new kingdom that's rising up, that's going to take it over. And this is going to be done away with. I mean, there could be a day where the dollar goes down to not being worth much more than a rupee. And I mean, I don't know that you want your entire treasure and your entire livelihood and legacy built on the currency of a world system that's broken. Whenever we serve a king who's coming with a kingdom where the streets are going to be paved in gold, what's treasured here is pavement there. I just don't compute. <laughs> I'm just having fun. So the love of money entices Judas to betray the Son of God. So he agreed and began to look for an opportunity in a better way to betray Jesus so they could arrest him. So this is already set in place. And there's this peculiar thing about Jesus that we learned in verse 3, and it's that all authority has already been given to him. What does that mean? He knows what's going to happen. Like, like he, he understands the cross is before him, that suffering is part of the mission that in order for him to complete the purpose for which he came to earth, he would have to be scourged beyond recognition. I mean, chapter 12 of John, they wave palm branches and herald him as Hosanna, Savior. Chapter 13, they line the same streets and spit and jeer at him as cursed of God as he is marred beyond recognition from being scourged and now ridiculed by perhaps the same people that heralded him. And, and me, it's like, that's, that's so fickle. Like, like, why were they so, no, 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 no. Don't, don't start making yourself a superhero in God's story because Jesus is the only one that comes out looking clean here. You and I, some of you today, heralded the name of Jesus but will live as if it's absent and devoid of power tomorrow. So don't act like you're not in the same potential position of being someone that could come in and talk about there's no other name other than the name of Jesus on a Sunday, only to be just like the other people in the story who are on the streets living as practical atheists on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday as if the power of God is absent and not true. See, the Father had already given him authority, verse 3. Jesus' death was intentional. He was not powerless or a victim of it. He embraced it, knowing that suffering was part of the fulfillment of his mission. Jesus knew that the plan was the cross and that the cross would bring the abandonment of the disciples, the betrayal of Judas, and the forsaking of his father who would turn from him as he who was not sin would be made sin on our behalf. Yet, Jesus didn't waver because Jesus knew his finish line. Jesus knew his mission and Jesus knew his finish line. His mission was not to set up an earthly kingdom and to be heralded and worshipped while he stayed on earth in our presence. His mission was to die as a substitutionary penalty payment for our sin so that whosoever, not just the people in Israel, but all over the world, would turn to him for salvation, could find it because of one man's sacrifice for all. In one man, the scriptures say, in Adam, all have sinned. One man sinned, therefore all have sinned. But through Christ, through one man's righteous sacrifice, all can be made righteous. I mean, this is the beautiful overturning of our condemnation, of our sinful death and separation from the creator that we were created to live in the presence of and worship and enjoy the glory of forever. And that was his mission. So my question is, Jesus knew his mission in the finish line. Do you know yours? Because the way we're living in this American church system, 
really makes me question whether or not we've come to understand what our real purpose here on this earth is. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, the Apostle Paul at the end says this, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is, is near. Death makes you think about legacy. It's the hardest thing to teach younger people to consider. Right now, the decisions you make are building a legacy that you may want to leave behind or you may not want to leave behind. Most of us spend the last decade doing what we should have spent our life doing, and that's building a legacy instead of just having a good time. Many of you want a good time, but good times don't often accompany great legacies. Young men, do you want a good time or a great legacy? And the honesty of that may be scary, but it can show you the position of your heart. That you've been so consumed with the temporary that you've lost sight of the eternal and what will matter. I'm not, I don't care about living a good life now that makes people or makes me comfortable. I, I care more about living a good legacy that is a statement to my kids. I, I don't care that they uh, have a dad that builds a great house with great property and takes them on great vacations and adventures. Instead, I care that they see through my example a father who loves Jesus and prioritizes the kingdom agenda of God first so that if they choose not to walk in that way, it'll not be because my example led them that way, but it'll be in contradiction to the very life that I lived in front of them. Y'all ain't church today? Are y'all awake? As for me, my life has been poured out. My time is near. I have fought the good fight. Can you hear the peace in that statement? Every battle that God brought brought before me by his spirit and his grace, I fought it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now, my finish line. My finish line. See, See, many of you, you took a mile marker and you made it a finish line. A moment where God moved where you had some radical sacrificial obedience and you thought, I'm done so I can live the rest of my life. So you, you moved on to this American-made invention called retirement. As if the Great Commission has a timestamp where as you get older, your responsibility towards it is any less. You can retire from a bank, but you can't retire from the kingdom. You can retire from teaching in a public school, but you can't retire from proclaiming the gospel. You see, the, the only reason you are here if you are in Christ Jesus, is that you would be a representation to those that are around you of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So your employment is a means for gospel ministry. Your retirement is a means for greater gospel ministry. Not a means to get a condo at the beach to pick shells up and live a selfish existence eating buffets every night at 4 o'clock. That is a travesty. It's a tragedy that that has become for some of you the goal that you would pay off God, bargain with God so that you could get a decade of self, selfish, self-centered existence. Non-focused, non-mission, impactful living. And then stand before a holy God. Oh, people, we, we, we need you older saints to teach us and model for us how to finish well. We don't, we don't need you to show us how to retire well. We need you to finish well. I mean, this is the finish line. That, that you and I, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, would walk in obedience towards God. And at the end of our lives, our finish line would not be a mountaintop experience where God moved, but, but it would be the moment our faith is made sight and we hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant, enter into eternal rest. That's the goal. It's not a bigger savings account. I want to say really bad things. I'm trying to filter some stuff right now. Like, like, forget your savings account. That's the most polite way I can say it. Forget this false security that's built up in American systems and in cultural systems. and in, I, I, You are chosen and founded upon and supplied by the King of kings and the Lord of lords for every good work. You have everything you need to do every good thing he's called you to do today. So stop delaying and playing this like hoarding game of like, well, someday whenever we have enough resource and we can call it faith, but it's not actually a step of faith. If you already know and have the resource to do it, it doesn't require faith to accomplish it. Therefore, it can't honor God in it. If, it, if, if it's not done in faith, it does not honor God. 
That's, that's the whole point. Like that, that's why we signed up for this, guys. It's life marked by the presence of God and unexplainable apart from it. Like I am and why I am, what I am, apart from the ongoing work of God, then I'm doing this thing that we've called Christian wrong. I'm the one that's coming to the temple now to bargain with God, but not to live a life that's surrendered under his authority and empowered by God. That's why Jesus turned the tables over. Some people are like, I can't believe you sell something in the church. We don't, by the way. But if we did, that would be out of context. Because the whole point of that text is people that were going to buy off, paying off their sin, not so they can turn from it and walk in the freedom of God, but so that they can pay off their sin to go and do more sin so they can come and do it again. That's why Jesus was T.O.'d, okay? Because he, he doesn't want your bargaining chips. He doesn't want your prodigal son speech of how you're going to do better. He wants your surrender. I'm so off script right now, but someone's supposed to hear this. He, he is looking for an, a, a no restriction, absolute, like laying down of John 3, 33. Like, like he must increase I must decrease and if that means that I've got to physically remind myself I will physically get low because I know that it's his glory that's got to grow in and through my life all right I I, I gotta move but here's my point here's my point do you have the right finish line Jesus clarity of mission and purpose allowed him to love Judas to the end here's what I'm getting at your enemies tell us a lot about your finish line I'm talking the people that did the unthinkable. They tell us a lot about the finish line. Jesus' mission allowed him to love Judas to the end. And what we see in the command to love one another and in the call to serve one another is a Savior that demonstrates in his last hours what it looks like to do it for the least and the most ungrateful and the enemy which is good news for you and me because you and I were enemies of God. Joe, come here real quick. I want to walk through this text briefly, and I want you to understand the, the grace and the mercy of God. It'll be weird because Joe's just going to be standing up here for a solid, you know, how many ever tangents I take. <laughs> but, but Jesus demonstrates his love, and let me explain. In verses 4 and 5, we, we read this text. Look at it with me. John 13, verse 4, it says this. So he got up from the table. After preparing the supper, he got up from the table and took off his robe and wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around them. Now, notice there's no distinction in the word disciples. The 12 that had walked with him into the room are the 12 that get their feet washed in the room. Eleven may be faithful, one may never turn to him in faith, but he still serves them anyway. Verses 10 and 11, Peter, not wanting to be washed, uh, brings up an objection, and Jesus replied in verse 10, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. Some of us could read that as a condemning word, but that's not my God. He's a God of conviction. Look at verse 11, for Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. I love what the theologian Kent Hughes says. He says, the upper room was charged with our Lord reaching out to Judas. When he washed the disciples' feet, he washed Judas' feet too. Jesus is saying to Judas, Judas, old friend, you're not clean. It's an invitation. Imagine being Judas. It's a tough task here. (laughs) Knowing that you've already set into place the betrayal of the one who's been called Messiah and Lord and called Hosanna coming in. Yet, even though he knows, he chooses to wash your feet. Imagine the eye contact. Jesus, knowing this is going to happen, looks up and locks eyes with you. Many of us, we, because of the failures of earthly fathers, think that it was a look of condemnation, but as I've read more and more, I'm more convinced it's a look of grace and empathy, uh, reaching out to the very heart of Judas in this moment. And as he washed the feet of his disciples, he washed the feet of his enemy, Judas, inviting him 
to a door that he didn't need to walk through. Some are like, well, he's providential, and he knew everything that was going to happen, so Judas was going to walk through it. No, no, no. Satan tempted a desire that was already in Judas' heart. Judas opened his heart to it. Judas is making the decision. God is totally sovereign, but within time, he has given us the opportunity to think and to reason. And The sovereignty of God does not contradict the freedom of people. I understand that your brain can often not comprehend it, but God's sovereignty doesn't mean that you are off the hook because God has chosen some and he didn't choose you. No, 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 no. All of us have sinful desires in our heart. Satan tempted it in Judas's heart. Judas's heart had turned towards Satan, and Jesus reaches out one last time. And he washes Judas' feet. Jesus was appealing to Judas' conscience, giving him reason and opportunity to reflect and repent. Can you imagine having set in, moment, in motion the plan to betray Jesus and having to lock eyes with Jesus as he washed your feet? See, this message, it's dangerous in its application. And it will definitely require the Holy Spirit for you and I to do this right. But I want to ask you, who are in Christ, is God giving you an opportunity right now to, practically speaking, wash your enemy's feet as he washed the feet of Judas? I don't know what that looks like for you. It might look like forgiveness. After all, you were forgiven millions, and some owe you thousands. May you not be like the servant who was forgiven millions, who goes and grabs the neck of the person who owes you thousands. It's an incredible parable. Hmm. Jesus washes the enemy's feet. But, but, but after washing his feet, he does something crazy. Come down here with me. He seats Judas beside him. And the, and the way they would have said it, it would have looked something like this. Most of us see a normal table, but it would have been more like this. You ready? If the table was here, we would have our elbows out like this. Come on down here with me. Other way. Don't turn your back on me. <laughs> Don't go Judas on me. And this is how you would have sat at the Lord's Supper, at this Passover feast. <laughs> In verses 18 to 21, look at what it says about this arrangement, this sitting. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But this fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food is turned against me. Uh, you're sitting right beside him. Literally beside him. The, the left seat in Jewish culture is the seat of honor. He's seated Judas beside. How do we know that? Continue reading with me. It goes on to say this. The one who eats my food is turned against me. I, I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah, that I knew all things, which is kind of a telltale sign that, you know, might be God. You know, I don't know how many of you know people that predict their death and their resurrection and then do it. You might want to go with the guy that walked out of the tomb. Just saying, just a quick apologetic for you. You know, I... I can't tell you when I'm going to die, and I definitely do not have the power to raise myself from the dead, but Jesus called both beforehand and then did it, and the disciples were like, oh, Shazam. <laughs> Look what it goes on to say. Uh, I tell you the truth, anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples were all up in a tissue now. Jesus, in just a few moments, is going to take a bowl. And this is why theologians believe that Judas was sitting right here. He's going to take a bowl, and he's going to turn to Judas, and he's going to offer him fellowship one last time. But he gives Judas the seat of honor. Uh, there's a, another slide that shows a picture of it. Because John has the most in, insight into this last meal, most believe that John sat directly to the right of Jesus, Judas directly to the left, and Peter it was common in that culture to show affection to your friends. I mean, it, it wouldn't be uncommon to lean back in the middle of a meal like this. Y'all think this is weird, but in Middle Eastern culture, this is just normal. Imagine knowing that you're going to betray the Son of God, and he's laying now right by your heart. William Barclay said that in this moment, at this meal, one last time, Jesus reached for Judah's heart. Some of you today, before you walked in this door, you were going Judas. 
And the grace of God means that he's not condemning you, but that he's reaching for your very heart. Inviting you into fellowship that perhaps you've denied a hundred times, but on the hundredth and first invitation you might receive. See, at the last supper, our Lord was reaching for Judas's heart. What the enemy, here's the question, here's the dangerous application, the one that you don't want me to ask. You ready for this? Oh, you feel the glory of God in the house. You feel that? Did you see that? Yeah. Talk about how to improve your life. I get everyone's taking laps and running around here. We talk about loving your enemies. Crickets. What enemies is the Lord asking you to sit with so that through you he could reach their hearts? I'll wait for you to write it down. What enemies? What enemies? On Super Bowl Sunday, I thought it was going to be light. I told you last week, the march to the cross is anything but light. (laughs) See, Jesus sits at the table with his enemy. He washes the feet of his enemy, and those who are in Christ are called to do the same. And those who are not need to know that Jesus has, through his salvation and through his cross, offered salvation to you, his enemy. And he desires to sit you, his enemy, at the table with him. I'll give it up for Joe for helping me with this unique illustration. All right? Ain't as young as you used to be, huh? You can't, can't get up quick. Can't get up quick. The last thing Jesus does, I'll land the plane here in this text. He, in this chapter, with Judas, demonstrating service and love, he offers fellowship with the enemy. If you look at verses 22 on, we see this in the text. Look at it with me. The disciples looked at each other after Jesus said, someone will betray me, wondering who he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him, which means he was likely across from him, motioned to him and asked, who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over, as I demonstrated on Joe, to Jesus and asked, who is it? Jesus responded, it's the one whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Now, Peter is going to hack some ears off in a short amount of time. One of the questions I've always had, I know you may not have the brain to think with me anymore, I've already preached you into oblivion here, but, 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 but one of the things, thoughts I had is, how does Judas, if Jesus points out he's going to betray him, how does Judas get out the door? Like, how is Peter not drawing swords and hacking up enemies here? Like, like P- Peter's one of those that's been wishing it would happen for a long time. You know what I'm talking about? Like, they're usually from Woodruff. And, and they've got... An, an armory, and they're not like, well, just in case. They're like, no, I wish and hope it happens. I was driving through central Arkansas after 9-11, and there was a billboard that said, send the terrorist here, we'll take care of it. I mean, like, that's Peter. Like, I got this, Jesus. So how is Judas going to be like the... The idea many theologians paint is that John hears it's Judas. Then Jesus quickly, because Judas was beside him, turns and offers this bowl that he dips in and says, go quickly and do. Before Peter's even read in, Judas is out the door. The the text goes so far as to tell us that they thought he was going to deal with the financial matter because that's what Judas dealt with. But as I read and think about it, it makes sense to me that as John got up from the table and went around to go and talk to Peter, that's when this one last reach for the heart of Judas happens between Jesus Jesus and Judas. The offering of the cup was a way of offering fellowship. It says in this commentary I read that in the culture of that time to take a morsel from the table and dip it in the common dish and offer it to someone else was a gesture of special friendship. That's what Jesus does in chapter 13. One last time, Jesus says to Judas, here is my friendship, here is my restoration, here is my heart. Judas doesn't turn. He walks out. I, I wonder often, like, as he walked out that night, did he look back to that upper room? <laughs> Was there a, a moment where he thought, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe this is the wrong path. But we know the end of Judas is tragic and often spoken of infrequently in church because of its brutality. But it reminds me of a story of a friend. He came into my office. His father was near the end of his life, still cognizant, but had his entire life denied the faith. Wanted nothing to do with that Jesus gospel stuff or those Jesus gospel people. 
So when his son became a believer, it was quite the intrusion into his thought of his life and legacy because he wanted to raise practical atheists that were smart and scientists, but not people of faith. And it caused a lot of consternation between he and his father throughout the rest of his life. And now at the end of his father's life, his son, knowing the gospel, wanted to know what to do. I mean, what do, what do you do? The gospel's clear, and no preacher's preaching someone into heaven that is <laughs> not in Christ. No matter what they say, and no matter how great the procession is, it's just a dead body pending judgment if it's not in Jesus on that last day. Some of you are like, how can God be good? Well, what more do you want him to do? He already laid down his life and sent his son. He offered it to, not just to Jewish people, but to whosoever would believe, to anybody. Not just to the rich, but to the poor, to anybody. So, I mean, what, what more do you want God to do? <laughs> so he's with terror and fear. What, what do I do? And I said, you plead with him to hear the gospel. He said, I pleaded. What do I do? And I said, you beg him to plead and hear the gospel. He went and had another conversation or 12 with his father before his father passed. And in the passing, he uh, never turned. He stayed the path of rebellion. And the gospel's clear about what that means. Not because God is unjust, but because he is just. <laughs> so after all those conversations and the funeral was over, he came in and we talked and I looked at him and I said, well done. Well done. You served as a representative of God, the enemies of God. Well done. It was never your responsibility to turn the heart of the enemy, but it was your responsibility to wash the feet of the enemy. And you wash them in speech and in deed and in not being fearful of proclaiming what they would perhaps find dreadful and force relationship or cause problems. With. Like you finished, you did your job. And though it was mournful, it was hopeful because as followers of Jesus, we knew there had been a path of obedience that had walked, even though it hadn't rendered the results we had hoped it would render. And so, so today, as we close the service out as the band comes up. I, I just want to invite you to a couple of applications, and then I want to plead with you. Number one, and this is important, do not underestimate the deceitful and tempting power of sin in your life. Sin is like a crouching lion crouching at your door. And for many of us, we don't think that that door is risky, so we open and we play with it and get marked by it and impacted by it, but, but never underestimate the deadliness of your sin. Now, here's what you need to understand. This is a parallel truth, meaning, yes, you should not underestimate how deceitful and how easy it is for you to fall into the temptation of sin, but you need to hear me on this because the second application is super important that you know because there's going to come a moment where sin takes you farther than you want to go, and you're going to do things that you never dreamt that you would do, and you're going to find yourself in a place that you don't want to be. And in that moment, you're going to hear in condemnation, you can't go back, and God won't receive you, and God doesn't love you, and, and you've wasted so much life that you can't turn back to God. And when that comes, you need to understand that though you may have underestimated the power of your sin, you in this moment do not have to underestimate the power of Jesus' love because this love is radical and it's deep and it serves enemies to the very end. He loves you, and he has not been silent in that love. He has demonstrated it in laying down his life for you, his enemy, so that you could become a friend, so that you could be moved from foe to friend, so that you could be moved from cut off from God to living in the presence of God, so that you could move condemned from sin to being justified by the blood of Christ from sin and this penalty in your life if he offers it to you because his love is radical and deep and wide. So, so, so here's the pleading. For some of you, you came in today with sin crouching at your door. You've been thinking about the affair for months and, and you've processed through one more time at church and then I'm going to act on it. Because affairs happen between the ears before they ever happen between the sheets. We, we committed last week, we were done saving face in church. We were going to be free even if we lost face. Remember, remember that? We, we're one week old on changing on, on this. And for some of you, you, you don't think sin crouching at the door is deadly. And I'm here to plead with you that you would take the temptation and the devastation of sin seriously, and perhaps more so, that 
you would believe that Jesus is reaching out to you in radical love right now and encouraging you that the seed of sin does not have to bear its destructive poison in your life. You don't have to go there this week. You don't have to open its door and walk its path of destruction this week. He's a chain breaker. He makes ways. He empowers us to not just endure life, but to overcome life and overcome the greatest of temptations. And He doesn't need you to bat a thousand in your own effort, but he needs you to bat a thousand in submitting to his work and will in your life. And if you'll do that, then he will empower you to overcome sin. So for those of you that are underestimating its power, it's crouching at your door. Don't open the door. Turn towards Christ and in his radical love, walk. For some of you, you have come to church today in a life of habitual sin. You're experiencing common grace. You've been fruitful. Life's been good. You breathe air. You have vitality physically you're healthy these are all good gifts from God but I plead with you not just to experience common grace but to experience salvific grace which means that you not only enjoy the fact that we live in a world that is marked by the presence of the creator but you've been invited into intimate relationship with him and he desires not that you would just enjoy life in his presence or in the marker of his presence for a moment but that you would enjoy it in a way that we've never experienced for an eternity and so you're in this path of habitual sin, and maybe you're not taking it seriously in its destructive nature. You don't have contrition. Perhaps even with pride, you've justified and defended why you live this life of sin that you're in. You have rap songs that back what you do, and it's silly to say out loud in this room, but it's become your life anthem. And now you've got people who have made a life out of making money off of breaking the commandments, leading you in a path that you don't want to go, but you don't know how to get out for a brief moment, you've pushed pause on that life of habitual sin and you've come to church and turned towards the Word of God in this moment. And my pleading, my begging of you would be that in the hearing of the Word of God, you would understand that you don't have to have the fate of Judas, but you can walk in a different path because Jesus desires mercy and grace and not wrath for you. You don't have to leave here turning your back to God and back towards setting your face on sin. Instead, you can leave here free. And so we repent when we hear the word of God at Four Points Church. We don't sit in our seat in indifference. We bend our knee and we go first. Repentance isn't for the lost. Repentance is for the saved that know they still need Jesus and they need the reminder of it. So the altar is here. Our prayer team is going to come forward and we'd love to minister to you. If you need to give your life to Christ, some of our prayer team will be here to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Today is a great day to do that. We're baptizing coming up in two weeks. We'd love for you to take that next step. Whatever it is that the Lord has for you to do, you move as we obediently respond to the word of God that we've now heard proclaimed by the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. Prayer team, you come.